The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the third chapter. Glory to you. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John, to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. There is nothing so blessed as a second chance, or a third, or a fourth. Well, you get the idea. Thank God that He does not take our first mistake and make it our last. For God is a gracious God, and our mistakes and our sins, and our oversights, and our shortcomings are known by God, and they can be forgiven by God. Yes, this is one of the mercies of having the understanding of baptism that we do, that we recognize our constant and consistent failure and our need for God's ever-present grace. Upon repentance and confession and forgiveness, we are restored to our baptismal state, a guilt-free, shame-free state before God. And it is to this place that we can return daily. Indeed, one of Martin Luther's more famous quotes uh, is a, a reminder of this. It's often summarized as daily dying and rising in our baptism, but this is pulled from the small catechism, which I know all good Lutherans know by heart. But in case not, I'll read this section from Luther's small catechism. It's on baptism. He says, What does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die all sins and evil desires and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Note the word daily. This is a view of baptism which stands in some contrast to a once-and-done approach. This regards your baptism as part of your ongoing reality, your identity. It's less important that you were once baptized than the reality that you are a baptized person who trusts what God can do when water and the Word are put together. It is less important what you decided one time 
than what you are called to decide daily, that God can redeem you. Yes, as a baptized person, we are like the wedding guest who shows up to the banquet wearing the right clothes. You might remember that parable. It doesn't end well for the person who's wearing the wrong garment. We won't be kicked out of the festivities so long as we are wearing the right thing. The king wants us to wear what he has provided us. He wants us clothed in the waters of baptism. He wants to save us. We only need to let him. You see, this is a different way of understanding salvation from a view that sees a one-time decision as the moment of greatest importance. Which, by the way, I'm not picking on our Baptist friends. Uh, most Baptist theologians and pastors would, would reject this kind of once-and-done view of baptism, but the way it often filters down uh, is that that's kind of what people tend to believe. Oh, I've been baptized, I'm good to go, I can now live life on my own terms. Uh, and it's not like me and all the angels of heaven don't welcome a person coming to their senses and saying to themselves, I choose Christ as Lord of my life. Rather, it's that all of our human experience tells us that such a decision, no matter how boisterous, no matter how public or heartfelt, sin will chip away and erode our confidence in that decision. And how many have made such a bold declaration of Christ as Lord, literally in front of God and everybody, but soon found themselves even more attacked by the devil and dragged back into a life of sin. We even see it in the pages of the New Testament. What is needed is a theology of new beginnings, a reminder that again and again, the Christian can turn to God and live. It is not just the first decision, but each subsequent decision uh, that is important to the Christian. And by the way, uh, the decisions themselves, uh, I would argue, are the result of the Spirit of God working in your life, not even your own strength or stamina. As Paul writes, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit gets all credit for our confessions, for our decisions, etc. So to the person who claims that Jesus is Lord, but still finds themselves struggling against sin, which is everyone who claims that Jesus is Lord, today is a new day. Indeed, every day is a new day. But today, on the festival of the baptism of our Lord, it is especially a new day. For the baptism of Jesus inaugurates a new day, a, a literal break in all of human world history. Everything is different after the baptism of Jesus. For on this day, God himself, incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, humbles himself to the point 
of receiving a sinner's baptism, though he had never sinned. For that's the baptism that John was offering, a sinner's baptism. God is doing something new in the world. He himself is identifying as a sinner so that through faith in him we might become righteous. As a friend once said to me, and I think I say it on every festival of the baptism of our Lord, it's not that Jesus needed to be cleansed by the water. Rather, Jesus cleansed the water. So all of us who have been baptized have received a perfect cleansing, though none of us at the time, no matter when it took place, were old enough or wise enough or good enough to deserve such grace. And when we fall for the second time or third time or millionth time, we can say to God, but I am baptized, and I believe the waters of baptism will purify me. Not because I deserve it, but because you claimed me. And because each and every day is a new beginning. And when we come to God with such an attitude, how does God respond? With more tenderness than we could ever imagine. The text from Isaiah 42, it's a text about Jesus. How do we know that? Because Jesus says so. When John the Baptist is in prison and he says, hey, Jesus, are you the Messiah or someone else coming after you? What text does Jesus quote to answer the question? Isaiah 42. He says, I'm the one. I'm the one fulfilling this prophecy. So therefore, what we see in Isaiah 42, we can take it to the bank that it is describing Jesus. And what does it say? Let's go through a few of these, these incredible verses. The children already heard uh, one of which already. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. That's kind of a strange verse about someone who's bringing forth a new message. What does it mean? I believe Isaiah is describing here a Savior who will not lecture you or shame you. He will not yell or shout, but he invites and he teaches. He doesn't go into the streets like a madman, and isn't that exactly what we see? In the ministry of Jesus, he teaches over and over. He invites over and over. You see, it is not through fear and intimidation that God invites you into his kingdom. But by describing it in such a way that if you still have an inkling of your conscience left, you cannot help but to say yes. A bruised reed he will not break. Well, you know, a reed is a, a plant. It grows by a body of water. It's rather easily killed. And you know, once you bend it, well, then it bends very easily again and can very easily break. Thus, once it's bruised, it will easily break. So the image of God, then, is one who handles us so gently that even if we are bruised, he will not allow us to be broken even if we have become broken by the strains of life or shamed by our own sins, we will not be broken by God. He is especially tender 
with those who are delicate, those who are on the verge of collapse or even death. If you feel like life has beaten you down, then this image is particularly comforting. For you need not fear God. He will not push you over the edge. Return to him, and he will welcome you back, no matter how bruised your life may be. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Well, as I said to the children in the children's sermon, if you've ever tried to start a fire, you know how precious any glowing ember can be. You have to nurse it. You have to gently blow on it. You have to keep it from too much wind or water, of course. In short, you have to nurse this small flame until it can become a blazing fire. And when we come to God with nothing but a faint ember, that is what he does for us. He takes us as we are. And through the Spirit, he makes our sins unthinkable and our old ways repulsive. Through mentors, we are taught the faith. Through community, we learn accountability. And through example, we might even become evangelists. It may not be overnight, but just knowing that God does not quench a faintly burning wick is incredible news. For none of us come to God as the burning fire that we will become. Isaiah's prophecy is visibly seen in the humility of the baptism of Jesus. God takes on the role of a sinner. He receives a sinner's baptism, saying to the world, I have become like you for you. That is the care and concern that he shows for his people. So for all of the hatred and the viciousness that is often uh, shown towards Christ and his church, this is who is hated. The God who has become flesh, been baptized as a sinner, and who nurtures his people as gently as a bruised reed or a faint ember. And that is why we love him. Because this is a God who could easily demand our love and yet he shows us what true love is. Amen.